Oborn and Heller on Cricket, brought to you by the Chiswick Calendar. Hello, it's Peter Oborn in Wiltshire in lockdown. In fact, more than a month into lockdown and more than three weeks into what would have been, in normal circumstances, the cricket season. Hello, this is Richard Heller, also in lockdown in south-east London, and reeling from the news that there is to be no professional cricket until July the 1st at the earliest in England, and no recreational cricket of any kind until further notice. This is very hard to live with, particularly since the weather recently has been such lovely cricketing weather, but I do have one rather good piece of news. More than that, it's a world exclusive, which we will attempt to bring you more of. And that is the news that Julian Assange has accepted an invitation to become a member of the Quito Cricket Club. Julian Assange is the founder of WikiLeaks. He's in Belmarsh Prison at the moment, resisting an attempt by the US government to extradite him to the US on espionage charges. Quito Cricket Club is in the capital of Ecuador and it's apparently, according to Wisdom this year, it sent an invitation to Julian Assange in Belmarsh to become an honorary member. That appears to be some sort of statement that it doesn't like the decision by the, uh, the new president of Ecuador to eject him from the Ecuadorian embassy, which happened a year ago. And Julian Assange was sensationally thrown out of the embassy, national, worldwide pictures and all the rest of it, after the country's president, Lenin Moreno, called him a stone in the shoe. But anyway, Quito's response to that is to invite Julian Assange to become an honorary member. Richard, that's good news, isn't it? Very good news. Good news for, for Julian and good news for Quito. According to Wisdom, he's got quite a cricketing background in his family, Julian Assange, and I believe he's rather proud of it. But do you know anything more about his, his own cricketing career? He was born in Queensland. I imagine he might have played, you know, in his early life. Well, I've been in touch with the Assange team with these questions. And what they said was that they hadn't received the invitation. His letter of invitation did not arrive at Belmarsh. So I passed on the, the fact that the letter had been sent. And I've got the message for the world now that he's accepted this, uh, this invitation. And so he is now an honorary member. Now, then I asked, what are his own cricketing credentials? But I haven't got back the answer on that. So you're responsible for his membership of Quito, which is a very impressive thing for both sides. But um, he's going to find it, if hopefully he's ever able to take up the invitation to play for them, he's going to find it quite challenging playing up there. Quito is 9,350 feet above sea level. Not much swing available for him up there if he's a swing bowler, and it must be quite difficult to bowl long spells at, at that altitude. Indeed, Wisdom describes it in the following terms. Should Assange ever make it to Quito, he will find a vertiginous backdrop for breathless games of high-altitude cricket. Matches take place on a bumpy field inside Park Carolina in front of shirtless bodybuilders, a large portrait of Pope John Paul II and two active volcanoes. 
Well, an inspiring setting. You've played some cricket at even higher altitudes than that, haven't you? Well, on our cricket tour of Pakistan three years ago, we played a game of cricket at 12,000 feet, the Shandor Pass, driving between Gilgit and Chitral. And we played against the local village on the local polo ground. And it was a great game. Such a fun place to play. We were welcomed so beautifully. And it is true that at 12,000 feet, the ball does not swing, but if you hit it, my word, it goes. Well, I'm glad I didn't experience that when I was bowling. I think it might have um, <laughs> left the Himalayas altogether if, uh, if I'd been playing up there. <laughs> the Hindu Kush, not the Himalayas. It... Excuse me, the Hindu Kush. It might have made it to the Himalayas if I'd been bowling. <laughs> uh, we lost, of course. We were playing tape ball, I should emphasise, ah. not red ball cricket. Clive Stafford-Smith, the chairman of Reprieve, opened the bowling for us, but we did get soundly thrashed. We went at 26 games in a row of consecutive losses, Richard. Has that been established as a, as a wisdom record? I think we should put in a claim for it. Uh, yeah, eventually, the third year we went back, we beat the University of Sargoda. My word, Sargoda's got an impressive cricketing pedigree. I think, if I remember, Misbah Ulhaq actually began his career in Sargoda. So I think that's quite a scalp for us. No, it was. It was a great game. You know, we chased down a big total, and it was a serious game of cricket, which we, I'm very proud about it, actually. But it did take us 26 games to, <laughs> oh, to well, win Long preparations, important in, um, condi- in Pakistani conditions and against Pakistani teams. Going back to Quito, I'd notice it's considerably higher than the highest first-class ground. That's at Chael in Kamalcha Pradesh province in India, but that's at a mere 8,018 feet. That's still a lot, though, isn't it? I mean, the game's going to be quite different at 8,000 feet from uh, than it would be at where we normally play, isn't it? it? It certainly would be. Highest test match ground is the Wanderers in Johannesburg, which is at about 6,000 feet. And apparently bowlers there find it the ball behaves very differently from lower grounds. What's the lowest ground in the world? Did you check that out? The lowest test match ground is actually below sea level, and that's Burda in Guyana. And that has to be protected by a moat. Gala in Sri Lanka, is, which was destroyed by the tsunami in, in 2004 and then rebuilt, is actually at sea level and is probably vulnerable again. I managed to check up on Lords, which is 131 feet up, and it's rather a safer place than the Oval, which is only 33 feet up. In an earlier podcast, we talked about environmental issues affecting cricket. And our friend Ian Callaghan reminded us that rising sea levels as a product of uh, climate change could be a very serious factor in, in world cricket. One will have to think of moving to higher and safer places to play cricket. I'm very grateful to Mr Callaghan. It's so nice to have people coming in off our conversations he said that Buxton is the highest first class ground something else I didn't know in England 984 feet and is the only ground where play had stopped for snow that was 1975 yes I think that's right about Buxton I'm willing to take other claimants I think that's the highest ground where first class cricket has ever been played in in England I think it gets pretty cold up there from time to time. I can tell you, playing on the Shandor Pass, it was amazing. It was September, and when the sun was out, it was very hot. And then the, the, the clouds came over, and it became freezing and snowed. And so you, we had these alternate moments of 
wanting to be just shirts and wanting really, to be honest, not just pullovers, but actually heavy jackets to keep us warm. Perhaps I'm glad I wasn't there because, as you know, I have a temperature clause in my contract. I don't play cricket below my age in Fahrenheit, so it's now going to be a jolly nice warm day to get me out there. So that means that you won't play under 70 degrees Fahrenheit, I imagine. Head north from 70 these days, yep. 72 is, is, is my um, is my entry-level temperature now. Very pleasant uh, temperature to play cricket and actually very pleasant temperature all round. Now, tell us, Richard, about the prospects for cricket this summer. Well, as we said earlier, no professional cricket before July the 1st. ECB put out a statement saying that they hope to have the two scheduled test touring parties, West Indies and Pakistan, in July and September in that period. It's very important that they get those series fitted in for England's qualification for the World Championship finals. The ECB is looking at the possibility of staging test matches behind closed doors in biosecure environments, to use their phrase. The venues uh, in question would be Old Trafford and what I still call the Rose Bowl in Southampton, because they've both got hotels actually on the ground where the players and presumably the officials and presumably everybody else concerned, uh, entourages that cricketers seem to need these days, would be housed and play cricket in a sort of biosecure bubble. I'm surprised that they've been so frosty, the ECB, uh, at these very two very kind offers, one from Abu Dhabi and one from New Zealand, to help out with the English international programme. I mean, New Zealand has handled coronavirus in a masterly way. And I cannot see the life of me why the England team couldn't go uh, to New Zealand to play there. And Abu Dhabi is, is another very hermetic environment, you know, that, that they've got very good stadiums, very good grounds. Why have they been turned down? Because actually, the England team could go off there now uh, and be playing either in New Zealand or in uh, Abu Dhabi. I don't think they've been turned down flat. I just think the ECB hasn't sort of processed this and worked out how you could fit the whole programme in. But I don't think it's been ruled out at all. The ICC met last week and the only interesting development to me from their meeting was that the ICC might allow artificial substances to be applied to the ball in place of spit, an issue we talked about last week. And I want to move on that conversation to a letter I've had from Peter Ford, the former British ambassador in Syria, who has said quite a detailed appraisal of coronavirus, hot weather and prospects for cricket. He has sent us a map of COVID incidents in the cricketing world. And it's an absolutely fascinating map. And he's given us a, a table which enables us to assess incidents of coronavirus in test-playing countries. And the figures are quite amazing. So it's one per million COVID death rates. Afghanistan, one per million. Zimbabwe, 0.3 per million. Uh, Bangladesh, 30 per million. Sri Lanka, 0.3. Pakistan, 57. India, 0.6. New Zealand, 4. Jamaica, Two, there's no figures for the West Indies as a whole. Barbados, 26. South Africa, one. Australia, three. England, 299. And I haven't got the figures here for Ireland. Now, that is 
done, not just by anything fluky about this. According to our man in Damascus, this is because COVID is susceptible to heat and to sun. And he cites the US Department of Homeland Security, which sounds an authoritative sort of uh, source. Their research has shown that, quotes, our most striking observation to date is the powerful effect solar light seems to have on killing the virus, both surfaces and in the air. Now, I, I should stress all of this is speculative, but these figures produced by Peter Ford, the former ambassador in, in Damascus, seem to me very striking indeed. They are very striking, a big contrast between England 299, I'll fill in the Irish figure, to 215. Those are two temperate countries, and hotter countries do appear on those crude death rates from COVID per million to be doing conspicuously better, particularly in the Indian subcontinent. And they oughtn't, in a way, to be doing better. One thinks of those countries as... Many parts of those countries have basically lower standards of hygiene than Britain and Ireland. Uh, they've got perhaps fewer washing facilities, and they've got people packed into small spaces. And if those factors are important, and they ought to suggest that, um, well, the death rate ought to be higher in those countries. It's actually, on those figures, conspicuously lower. It may have something to do with, with heat and sunlight, as suggested. You've got to be very cautious with any recorded death rates from COVID because standards of recording and criteria for recording is COVID deaths vary so much from country to country. But it is quite a big gap between the English and Irish figures and the figures from hotter countries. And it just may be that the the future of cricket for a while lies in seeking heat and sun. This theory being presented seems to me to be uh, dangerously similar to something which Donald Trump, in his garbled and obscure way, was attempting to say at a press conference last week, wasn't it? Uh, indeed, but um, just because a theory is presented to Donald Trump doesn't necessarily mean that it's wrong. The other possible salvation of world cricket, though, might be um, the Central Asian Republic of Turkmenistan. Sorry? Turkmenistan, a country on few people's lips. But Turkmenistan, under the guidance of um, its great protector and ruler, uh, has actually recorded no cases of COVID whatever. And as a result of this, they've been playing football, but they've been playing football with live spectators, thanks to the protector's wise regime for preventing COVID. You are always a source of fresh information, Richard. Very significant contribution to the world struggle. The protector, who's called Gurbanguly Berdi Mukandemov, has kept the virus away. Not a single case, and it's all because the people have been following him doing his exercise videos. He's issued exercise videos of himself weightlifting and bicycling, and he's also advised them to burn a local herb called Yuzarlik. There's no reported cricket in Turkmenistan yet, but I um, feel sure that the protector is a cricket lover. I mean, after all, he's named himself after Surav Gurbanguly, the former Indian captain. And if he formed a cricket team now and captained it himself, pretty sure he wouldn't be given out LBW by his uh, own umpires. And he might well gain Turkmenistan, the World Test Championship, by default. Indeed, if those umpires 
were keen on living beyond the, the close of play, they certainly wouldn't be giving him out, I would imagine. Not a bit. The, uh, the protector has taken Turkmenistan to number one in the World Repression Championships. He's actually edged out North Korea, so very important sporting milestone there. But uh, certainly, you know, requires prudent umpiring of the protector at the wicket. If I could just return to recreational cricket in Britain, which concerns us, of course, both deeply. No prospect from the ECB of a return to recreational cricket at all. Any kind of recreational cricket. It means nets and coaching as well. And I had a message from John Simons of the Cricket Society uh, reminding us that recreational cricket was actually very badly hit by the foot-and-mouth epidemic in the first part of 2001. A lot of uh, rural fixtures had to be cancelled because it was impossible to travel to the grounds and impossible to retrieve balls from neighbouring fields, even sometimes even if you could travel to the ground. I have to say I find it very difficult that we can't play recreational cricket. It's because so little uh, social distancing... It's necessary if you're playing cricket, you know, you're all scattered around the field. I, I know it's my hobby horse, but it really upsets me. And I think it would do everybody a power of good. And standing at cover point or at um, deep extra or even at silly mid-on, you're within the social distancing rules. Well, if you're a very brave silly mid-on, you're probably going to breach the social distancing rules. And if you're a wicketkeeper, if you're an umpire at the bowler's end, you're going to be rather too close to the bowler at times. But I think one could devise a form of the game in recreational cricket that would fit the rules. Certainly you could have nets under the existing rules, but it would be the social side afterwards which would be have to be lost and forfeited, and that's so much of the game. Well, you go back to your respective homes and have a, a Zoom drink. The lack of recreational cricket has created a big threat to cricket facilities, particularly in public parks. And this has led to the very first major challenge faced by Keir Starmer, the new Labour leader. Keir Starmer represents Regent's Park, his London constituency, and the Paddington Rabbits, a team that I've played for and guested for occasionally, have told me the shocking news that the cricket pitch at Regent's Park is being invaded in the absence of cricket by all sorts of riffraff. Golfers, um, tennis players, footballers, sunbathers, and worst of all, dog walkers. And um, they've appealed to Keir Starmer to defend the pitch from these encroachments. And how is the new Labour leader dealing with this? I mean, he's got some minor matters on his plate. Prime Minister's questions, how to deal with coronavirus, uh, how to deal with the Labour Party internal report on anti-Semitism. But this is obviously much more serious stuff. So how's he coping with this major crisis in his early years, early weeks even, of his leadership? Well, he's certainly taken an interest in the issue. He's uh, he's on the case. Uh, We don't know what results he's achieved yet, but he recognises this is a very important test for him. After all, if he can't defend the cricket pitch at Regent's Park, how are people going to believe that he could defend the country? I couldn't agree more than that, and we'll be keeping a very close watch on how Keir Starmer deals with this early crisis in his Labour leadership. So that is the big issue which will confront Keir Starmer in the early weeks, if not months, of his Labour leadership. But I now want to take the conversation on to the philosophical seminar which we are running every week. 
Well, our next member of the Philosopher's Eleven was Plato. And Plato had multiple roles in early Athenian cricket. The first one was as a courageous opening batsman. There are a lot of wild fast bowlers around in those days. And although they kept um, redesigning the Corinthian helmet, they never got a model that suited cricket, only one that worked for warfare. So uh, Plato was never seen in one. Mind you, he had a very hard head. He was once hit by a beamer, by a ferocious visiting Scythian opening bowler. Plato had stayed on his feet, didn't even rub his head, and they had to replace the ball because it had gone out of shape. A bit like Brian Close. I mean, that sort of gutsiness, you know. Brian Close notoriously asked if somebody who was fielding at short leg hit full in the head and has asked if anybody had caught the rebound. After that, he moved a yard closer. <laughs> he did. Yeah, he wasn't, he wasn't giving way. Very much a platonic sort of player, Brian Close. Anthony McGowan, uh, who you talked about last week, has a um, theory of that Plato would have been a walker at cricket. He's reviewed the philosophers who would and wouldn't have walked. And he thinks that Plato would have walked for two reasons. First of all, because Plato thought we were all born with a sense of virtue, because in a past life we were in a state of pure virtue in which cricketers invariably walked. And secondly, because like Socrates, Plato believed in obeying the laws of the state. But I'm afraid, again, I must disagree with uh, Antony. I think Plato walked because he was fed up with being hit on the head. He probably walked for LBW appeals after all that. I'm not sure that McGann is, who I hope will come on this programme and justify his arguments in the next few weeks. I don't think Anthony McGann is right. Plato, remember, believed in the, what he called the noble lie, which was basically there were only a very small number of elevated people, enlightened people who understood the true nature of reality and the rest of the populace really had to swallow anything going. And he believed that lying could be a virtuous thing. Dishonesty could have been a virtuous thing. He may well have taken the view that it was rather like W.G. Grace, that the crowd has come to watch him and not not the other side. So I think he might well have stayed in the middle uh, out of a sense of, of his own greatness. His biggest contribution of all to Athenian cricket was organising the after-match drinks, or the Simpicium, as they called it then. They went on long into the night, and Plato left a wonderful account of one of them. It was a pity, again, that he had to give his idol Socrates the very best lines, but you get a great sense of the other Athenian players. There was um, Alci Legbiades, the fumbling wicketkeeper, there was the mid-order batsman, Agathon. He was very much a leg-side player. There was Pausanias, um, with whom Agathon built so many partnerships. There was the posh captain, Aristodemus. And the wonderfully inept Apollodorus, whom, of course, they nicknamed Appalling Doris. Peter made an awful mistake, and he invited Rodney Marsh and David Boone to join us in Piscium. Oh, dear. Why? They flew... They flew over from Australia on Aristophanes. <laughs> yes. Fifteen hours then, with a refuelling stop for the birds. And at the Simpicium, each man had 54 tins of early Greek lager. Well, it's no problem for Marshy and Booney, because they trained for it on the long-haul flight. But uh, Greeks couldn't handle it at all. It finished Plato not just as a cricketer, but as a philosopher. Uh, his hangover led him to doubt the existence of anything he saw in the material world. 
that night and, uh, and ever afterwards. And in fact, from then on, Plato was nicknamed Clothes of Plato. <laughs> I, I, made, I made that one up on the spur of the moment. Now, moving from one great figure to another, from Plato, I want to turn to Field Marshal Lord Bramwell, who we talked about a few weeks ago and had a lifelong love for cricket. And our conversation has elicited a letter from Ian Vaughan Arbuckle, who was a no mean performer himself. He played for the army, captained the army, and he has sent us his memories of Bramall, who also played for the army, also played in Hong Kong, and was chairman of army cricket in the 1970s. And Ian's given us some really lovely memories of what Twin was like as the chairman of army cricket. They are lovely to read. Very good cricketer, Dwin Bramall, but also <laughs> very observant, very punctilious in the standards of the game. Ian says he was Dwin Bramall was chairman of army cricket in the 70s. He was then a general, and Ian was captaining the army against Hampshire 2nd 11, and dreadful thing, a lot of the army players took their shirts off. And suddenly, says Ian, I saw a black limousine drive through the gates, and I recognised it as Dwin Bramall's staff car. And that caused a minor panic as um, players dashed into the pavilion to get their shirts on. Ian says he sort of intercepted Bramall and gave him a rundown of the game, which they're about to, the army's about to win, and he thought he might have sort of got away with it all. They had a cup of tea together, but just as uh, Dwin Bramall was about to leave, he expressed his satisfaction at how, how things were going. But as he was about to drive off, he said, By the way, Ian, I saw some players without their shirts on. So he missed nothing, probably why he was such a good military leader. I must say that uh, I want to say a few words about Ian Vaughan Arbuckle, who after his distinguished army career, and then he joined the Foreign Office, and after that he became a uh, ICC qualified umpire, and he is our team umpire, and he is a real martinet. We aren't perhaps always the best disciplined or best dressed team, but... Having Ian as our umpire gave an authority and uh, respect to our team, which we didn't always entirely deserve, I felt. He certainly did. He was a very fair-minded umpire, as I discovered on several LBW appeals by the opposition. We're getting a lot of contributions from listeners, which are very much welcome, and please keep them coming. But we've had a particularly important one from our former colleague, journalistic colleague, Simon Walters. Simon's written in following our discussion of Nawaz Sharif's uh, playing cricket, uh, in which we just talked about the ball being, quotes, escorted to the boundary. <laughs> Simon says that this reminds him when he was the uh, Sun correspondent in Harare, I mean, with the British lobby correspondent, accompanying John Major to the Chogham, the Commonwealth Heads of Government meeting in Harare in 1991 when John Major was Prime Minister and asked to take place in a charity cricket match in Harare which involved not just John Major but all the keen cricketers among the Heads of Government which included Bob Hawke of Australia, Nawaz Sharif of Pakistan and various otherwise. I mean Simon recollects that Hawk was the star, one of the stars. He smashed the ball everywhere. Sharif came in and hit five consecutive sixes, whereas John Major was very John Majorish. Apparently, he opened with Hawk, and after about half a dozen 
overs. Hawke was on about 50 and Major was still blocking the ball and hadn't even quite got into double figures. According to Simon, Major was very nervous. He, he loved cricket, he wanted to play, but he was very nervous. It was his first Commonwealth Prime Minister's conference and he'd just taken over from Thatcher. There was an election coming up quite soon and he was worried about getting out early and getting headlines. Lame duck Prime Minister, you know, humiliated in Harare. And according to Simon, he, well, he gave himself a lot of net practice with his head of private office, Gus O'Donnell, who was a very keen sportsman. Making cricketer, Gus. He used to take a cricket team, he told me, to Norfolk. Uh, once a year, I think, he had a bunch of mandarins would go touring in, I think it was Norfolk, I might be wrong. Very, very keen sports. I think he was a footballer as well, Gus O'Donnell. He was an all-rounder. And I think he ran man very much after Major's heart. I think they got on very well together. But he certainly he gave the Prime Minister a lot of practice. And also, according to Simon, the other secret of the match was that they'd arranged for a lot of school kids to be the bowlers at the politicians. And the school kids were primed to bowl sort of lollipops and long hops and... Um, you know, and uh, half volleys and, um, you know, balls that said, rather like mine, that said, hit me, go on, hit me. And Hawke took advantage in a big way. Sharif took even bigger advantage with his five sixes, which he's very proud of ever afterwards. And even, I gather, John Major gradually expanded and took some singles. Very interesting material also has emerged, thanks to the what is now the 25-year rule, from the National Archive in Kew. It shows the anguished correspondence, really, between John Major's office and Harare, of the British diplomat. The councillor in the British High Commission was someone called Mark Williams, who doubled up as the Zimbabwe correspondent for Cricketer magazine. That's a man after my own heart. He said that the British High Commissioner was very taken with the idea, uh, but Prendergast wrote to Stephen Wall, John Major's private secretary, suggesting that the idea of any cricket match at Victoria Falls was a non-starter. It was too hot. There's no ground there. And I understand the Prime Minister's knee is not up to a long innings. So Prendergast, a typical bloody diplomat, tried to kibosh the whole proceedings and thought they would make do with an informal uh, supper party. But Stephen Wall and Major and uh, Nawaz Sharif insisted that they would have a cricket match. Good for them. Well, good for them. And they they didn't have it at Victoria Falls, did they? They um, it happened at the Harare Sports Club. Uh, the politicians opened. They only, according to the timetable, the politicians played for only ten minutes, which is enough to Nawaz Sharif to hit his five sixes, which was served up to him. And then some famous international cricketers took over. Clive Lloyd was there. Graham Hick and David Houghton. It was a big success. It raised, um, I think, £70,000 for local charities. And Mugabe watched. And Mugabe, Mugabe loved cricket uh, all his life, didn't he? And they all agreed that cricket was a, you know, a great bridge between all the Commonwealth. Robert Mugabe did love cricket for a, because he had this romantic view of Britain, which is quite surprising given his vindictive policies. But he saw cricket somehow as representing a misty vision of 19th century England, which he took with him, really, I think, to his grave. Uh, he, he'd he got on very well with Christopher Soames when he was uh, the British envoy there. And he 
just loved the British, although he obviously fell out rather seriously uh, because of his human rights policies. John Major, his cricket was very good. As a young man, he played a lot and he once nearly scored a century in Jos in central Nigeria. And I know this because I went to Jos to make a film in about twenty, about 15 years ago. And John Major had been there as a young banker for Standard Chartered about 30 years earlier. And uh, there was still the cricket ground where Major had been approaching a century. I think he was saying like 95 not out when suddenly the whole thing was cleared in order to make way for an aeroplane which wanted to land. And that was the end of John Major's innings. Uh, and furthermore, it more or less marked the end of his cricket career because shortly afterwards he had this car crash which badly damaged his knee and he spent a lot of time in hospital and he never really returned to cricket of the standard which he'd been playing while he was out there in Nigeria. Must have been a great personal deprivation to him, though he certainly loved watching cricket and got in as much cricket as he possibly could as a politician. Of course, his first act after losing the um, general election in, wasn't it, 1997, was to go to the Oval and watch some cricket. And they used to pass round famously at cabinet meetings, you know, the cabinet ministers would be baffled because suddenly a flunky would, or an official would turn out and present the prime minister with a piece of paper, which he would then pass to Ken Clark, who would then pass it on to others. But no, I didn't know what this secret communication was, but it was actually the latest uh, test scores. Clem Attlee had a similar policy in his cabinet, and uh, John Major also had these... Endless cricket quizzes with um, his Northern Ireland secretary, Peter Brook, didn't he? They'd pass notes to each other over the, over the cabinet table. And again, people thought, my goodness, this must be high policy with these secret notes going by. But it was just cricket teasers, you know, who was the last batsman to score five centuries in a row, all that kind of thing. Indeed. And those quizzes were sort of assembled and published in The Spectator around Christmas time. There would be Peter Brook's, I recollect, cricket quiz which was get sent to readers to occupy them, you know, during those, between Christmas and the New Year. Really? Apart from John Major, the cricketer, Simon's also given us a lot of insight into the current Prime Minister, into Boris Johnson, the cricketer. Crikey, so he has. He's sent us some very interesting and important unknown information about, uh, at least as far as I was concerned, about Boris Johnson, the cricketer. I mean, Boris, I have played cricket. I've captained uh, Boris Johnson at, at cricket, and he, he loves his cricket. He's not a particularly good player, but he's always a presence on the cricket field, to put it mildly. <laughs> he's also, I, I'd say he's uh, naturally a number seven or eight bat. He'd come in and throw the bat a bit. He can bowl. The ball does get down to the other end. He's very enthusiastic, but very competitive. And that's what comes from the material which Simon Walters has kindly sent us. Yes. First story he tells is from his Will Walden, who used to work for Boris Johnson at City Hall, the spin doctor. Will says that he was taking part in a family cricket match, not even a competitive one, just a family cricket match. Boris Johnson's children were young and Will was on Boris's team. Will was batting last. They needed one run to win. And to make sure everyone was happy, Will deliberately dollied up a catch to one of the children to ensure a tie. And according to Will, Boris was furious, swore at him and didn't speak to him for half an hour. 
<laughs> that is true. Yeah, with, with your children, you know, in front of your children. Yeah, yeah youngest children, you know. No, no, um, you know, huh, no, no quarter given. Yeah. But the other story he gave us is actually historic. I mean, it suggests that cricket was stopped Boris becoming prime minister in 2016. I haven't got the document in front of me. Can you remind me what? Exactly how that exactly how that happened. It's well, fascinating. There's an unexpected vacancy in the Tory leadership because in 2016 David Cameron has lost the referendum on on Europe. Uh, he's left. So there's, there's a leadership contest to succeed him. But unfortunately, this uh, Boris stands for the leadership. But unfortunately, it coincides with uh, a cricket fixture that he'd agreed to play with his chum Charles Spencer at Althrop. Yeah, I, 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 that's the fixture I. Captain Boris, I, I think the Spectator played Lord Spencer's eleven at Altrop, as it's correctly pronounced, I think, yeah. in about 2005 or something. Yeah. And that's when I played in that match. It's a lovely ground in, in uh, Altrop. It's in the corner of the estate somewhere. Mm. Well, anyway, Boris goes ahead with the, fulfils the fixture, doesn't, um, you know, use the leadership contest to cancel it in any way, which I think is very fitting behaviour. And then, apparently, according to this, uh, Boris stages a, um, what he, it's described as an alcohol fueled barbecue at his home in Tame in Oxfordshire. And unfortunately, the cricket match and the barbecue were exploited against him by Michael Gove, who wanted the leadership himself. Gove said, you know, this shows he's not a serious contender for the leadership. I mean, this is, you know, he's a frivolous lightweight. Vote for me instead. And this is what led Gove to sort of stab him in the back so publicly. And probably, as a result, denied Boris the leadership for, well, for three years, as it turned out. Yeah, I mean, it was that very, very dark moment when Gove, was it five minutes before Boris Johnson's press conference to announce his leadership, suddenly made some very disobliging remarks to the effect that Boris could not be trusted by anyone or was completely unfit to lead the country, something of that nature. It was very rude. Uh, but the fact that this was based on Boris deciding to play cricket rather than campaign for the leadership at all, I have to say, this puts Boris in a very, Boris Johnson, Mr Johnson, in a pretty good, I, I think his behaviour was correct to carry on with the cricket match. I couldn't agree more. I think he should have made more of it, actually, in the campaign. I think he should have spun the issue around. I think he could have channeled Francis Drake. You know, he could have said there's time to finish the match and lead the country out of Europe as well. <laughs> Indeed, yes. I'm going to carry on with the game of bowls and then we'll defeat the Armada. Yeah, yes. sort of thing. Yeah. yeah. There we are. Earlier this week, Boris Johnson has just had some good news. His fiancée, Carrie Simmons, has um, just given birth to a son. What we don't know yet is whether the little chap's an opening bowler or a left-handed batsman or a, um, you know, an off-spinner, but I'm sure this will be revealed in due course. This takes me on to a, a grievance I've harboured all my life. When I was born, my grandfather was a member of the MCC and uh, he offered, which you could do in those days, to put me down for the MCC at birth which would have meant probably when I got to about the age of 20 or something, I would have become a member. And my mother said, no, you shouldn't do that, because how do you know that he'll be interested in cricket? <laughs> and so I wasn't put down for the MCC, and I'm still not a member <laughs> of the MCC, because I've never quite got round to... I think I once was given the papers and 
didn't fill them in right or something. So anyway, I'm still not a member of the MCC. All that, but my I could have been a member since I was you know in my late teens oh, probably. What a tragedy! I could have been a contender. You know, I could have been a member. I snuck in in a in the seventies. It was a lot easier apparently. Well, it must have been for me. And I was told years later that um, told a committee member what year I'd got in. He said, "Oh yes, it was a very cold winter then. We needed to get the membership list up again." One last thing, Richard. Uh, we've continually having people writing in, ringing in, texting in. They want to know the. Can you just give us any more information about Geoffrey Archer? No, afraid not. We've just received a super duper injunction from the firm of Shillings and Pence from a party we cannot name for reasons we don't know. It's so super duper we don't even know the court where we're allowed to challenge it. So it has to be continued silence on Geoffrey Archer. And his run-out. And his run-out and the horror of horrific events afterwards. All embargoed. And it only remains for us to say, from me, goodbye. And from me, goodbye too. <laughs>